Hello, and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? That's a podcast aimed at folks, maybe like you, but definitely like Neo from the movie The Matrix, who feel a deep sense of dislocation. On this pod, we talk about heavy things, but we do it lightly. We'll use theology and history and philosophy and years of deeply immersive experiences in foreign cultures to figure out, how did we get here? No rabbits on this show. Rabbits are those quickly reproduced memes of very little meaning. Instead, we're going to go deeper. We're going to check out contemporary culture, but we're going to use an old world perspective. So join me, John Hears, in our first things team as we wonder, why are we talking about rabbits? This is episode seven. Bye-bye, Columbus. Hello, new funky griot. So, I'm here today to start the podcast with two guests, but I'm related to them, which sometimes makes them feel less like a guest and more like older women living in my house, sharing my genes. Hey guys, say hi to Nico and Georgia. Come say hi, Georgia and Nico. What an intro. Hello. Yeah, so Nico, you're 18. Yes. You're going to have to speak closer to the microphone. Okay, sorry. You're 18, mm-hmm. and you're on your way to the University of South Carolina to study education and dance. Is that right? That is correct. And Georgia, you're 21, and you're at Oberlin studying music. You're a singer. Yes, I am. Hi. And the two of you together, you have brain power on this issue of what is history. Is that right? Could you say um, anything about that in your 18 years, Nico? Anything about history? What is it? It's like a book of our past. So would you say that history is something that feels really necessary to you? That's what we're going to try to figure out today. Yeah, I would say it's necessary, but there's how you interpret it is almost more important. Do you think when you look at me, because we're really close in our studio here, and you guys said the studio smells badly. <laughs> that was hurtful. Open a window. <laughs> I don't really understand that. I'm just sitting in here and doing work, so that's bad news for me. But Georgia, do you, when you see me, you're looking at your history, right? Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess in a way. Do you feel that way? Like, Nico, you're really looking at me askance right now, like I'm bothering you. <laughs> no. But I am your past. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, basically. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like you want to be free of your past slash me? Um, not free of it. I, I want to be associated as my own self, though. You want to start your own history. Yeah. But what if what if in the old world, and we'll talk about this when you guys leave, which is soon, because I got to talk to this crowd, but what if you never can get free? How does that make you feel? You'll always be me and mom. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, I think in relation to, you know, like, um, today's events of like 
like this revision of history, right? Or, or I don't really see it as a revision of history. I see it as a revision of a really specific narrative. Um, well, that's interesting. We're going to get into that today. Mm-hmm. Did you, was someone taught you that at Oberlin? Um, partially at Oberlin, probably in high school too. It's interesting. And so this is a new narrative, a replacement of an old narrative. Is this like people getting free of their dad or their mom and trying to write it for themselves? Do you guys see it like that? It's a, it's a bit of like, it's a bit of a, what's the word? Not, um. It's like a brainwashing. <laughs> no. <laughs> Like Columbus just got torn down. Like, is it like Columbus is, he's a sucky relative of ours. Let's forget him. No, I don't see it as forgetting forgetting. at all. I think it's actually remembering things that, you know, we're taught to forget often. But last night, the Chicago mayor in the night took down the Columbus statue. Yeah. Because he was like a bad relative that we want to forget or. Because, well, I see. Are we going to put something new there? I think it's interesting possibly but I, I see statues as a form of reverence as a form of celebrating a certain you know thing or whatever that person it's a sure, representation of that sure, person what that sure. person represented and so i think it would make sense um you know not to revere columbus columbus in my opinion but but just in, in a more general form because he was a racist or because you know he raped and pillaged <laughs> I don't know if he actually raped anyone, but he definitely allowed really? that to happen. Do you guys think he was like getting busy? Most likely, I do. One hundred percent, I would say he yeah, was I think the there raper. Counts, um, but I think I think it's 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 not even on an individual. It's it's part of what he stands for, right? Because because that statue isn't actually him. It's a representation. It's a physical like representation of him and all that he stands for, and and so yes, he's. What he's standing for is much bigger than, you know, what Columbus did in his day and age. It's it's what um Got it. Colonization. So he's a right. He's a manifestation. He so and he had to come down. So you guys aren't you aren't upset that he came down from that Chicago circle. No. (laughs) Makes sense. And would you put something else up there or would, would history just not be necessary at this point? I think it's, I don't know. I think it's interesting that you're posing the question as, is history not necessary? Because I think that um, taking him down is not, is not like a rejection of the fact that he existed and did certain things. It's actually more of like, it's, it's, it's more of a broader and, and less... Um, so you're broadening the notion of Columbus by taking down his statue? Possibly, yeah. Okay. And understanding that maybe he's not this hero that we've been mm-hmm. taught to understand him as. Okay. All right. This is interesting. Do your friends care about this stuff? Um, my friends do, yeah. I think definitely a few of my friends do, but as we're a younger generation, I think there's a lot less... No, it's it's interesting. It's definitely interesting. There's a part of the generation that's very gun ho about change and would definitely agree with the tearing down of statues if they stand for hate and not necessarily an accurate representation of history. But then there's the other side that's kind of 
ignorance is bliss and kind of ignores that feature. Where are you? Yeah. Where are you, the daughter that I raised? <laughs> Nico. I definitely... Are you a bliss person? <laughs> I was for a while. I did not want to... I don't like to stir the pot or start drama. Mm. But, I mean, it's not drama. <laughs> it's facts. And I think that now that I'm more aware of what's happening, I definitely would say I'm more gung-ho with change. Mm-hmm. I've noticed. <laughs> well, your mom and I still love you guys since COVID <laughs> started. Do you, are you ready to leave the house because of COVID? Because you've had I'm enough of neutral. us? You guys seem like you really like it here. I love you guys. I love being home. I, love I feel you like too, you're maybe more ready for us to leave. What if you left? Would you be sad? <laughs> I don't think mom and dad would be sad. All right, let's say goodbye. But you guys, all right. So I just wanted people to hear that before. Well, as we talk about this conversation, thank you for coming, girls. Any last words to the Rabbits crew out there who are listening? Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Um, thanks for having us on this conversation, Papa. I well, want to say... Are you glad you did it? <laughs> yeah, I am, because we were reluctant at first, but then I realized, thank you, Papa, for always wanting to have open dialogue. It's really important, I think. Yeah, I think it's that's part of this show, part of this podcast. Okay, we'll get back to you guys. I'm sure when we talk about other things in the course of the next... Uh, what do you think I'll live for? Like 20 more years? Oh my god! I'm saying a good 15. 15? <laughs> yeah. And then just, that's it. Okay. All right. Uh, no, forever, forever. Forever. Whoa. Hey, did you take the lightometer test, Nico? You didn't, did you? Georgia did. She's an 11, but I think that was under, under uh, you're under duress because I was sitting right here I with you. I was listening to the podcast on my drive home. And I was having it trouble off. keeping count while driving. You couldn't do the math? No, I, there was a certain point. I think I got to like one of the last questions and I kind of forgot all of my previous answers. So as a ballet dancer, math's not your thing? Uh, okay, yeah. Oh, all right. Oh. Take care. Uh, Thank thanks you, for coming, guys. And um, we'll, we'll keep going. Little by little, the Here's Girls, at least two of them out of the four, say hello and goodbye. <laughs> Take Bye. care, guys. Thanks for having Bye. us. All right. Thank you, ladies. Those are my chicks, two youngest anyway. Maybe we bring the two older ones on. That'll get fiery. That'll get hot. But today we heard from the girls. Now it's time to do some history. What is history? One thing we see this week that it's relevant because in Chicago, they took down Columbus's statue in the middle of the night, which tells you that if they took it down in the middle of the day, it might have been a problem, which means that history, because I mean, Columbus is dead, means history is alive. Why should this all be so important? History matters, but what is it? Let's figure it out today. And I'm going to start with a quick experience from West Africa. It's a cool experience. It's about these cats called griots. So a griot is a storyteller. It's a historian, truthfully. I want you to picture three guys. These are the guys I saw. They came to the village I lived in when I was serving in Peace Corps in Mali. They came, well, about three times in a year and a half. 
they would come bare-chested mostly. They had these cool boots, well, at least the lead singer did, these cool like moccasin boots that went up to his knees, kind of like, I don't know, they were like fastened with like these cool twines. And then they had on a headdress, well, the lead singer did. Then they, the drummers, like one guy smoked while he drummed, but he drummed like, ugh, like wada. He was so good. And these three guys would show up and they would sing. I want you to think of like a three-day event. They would come on Friday and there was a big party. Then on Saturday, well, after prayers. Then there was a big party on Saturday, big party on Sunday. And these guys were the entertainers and they literally told stories. And all three times they told one story, the story of Simba and Mufasa. Not really, but yes, this was the story of Sunjiata and Sumara, because the Lion King is the story of an actual king from the Malinke ethnic group in the 1200s. It's a real story. Sunjiata is the king who actually in the Lion King is Simba, who slays Mufasa, who in the actual history is Sumara. And when he does that, he regains his throne. This is all happening in the 1200s. And I heard him sing this story for three days at a time. The griots were so good at it. All the kids would sing along by the end of the weekend, right? And here's the really interesting part. At the end of the weekend, everyone got together at desks and then they took a test on a bubble sheet and made sure that they knew exactly the year that Mufasa was slayed by Sanjiata, no, they didn't do that. That would be dumb. They did not take a test at the end of the weekend. They just all walked off to go do their work, singing the songs of the Malinke people. Oh, that's them. And what was it all for? It was to learn who they were. So the first thing from this story that I think we should remember is that history is important enough to spend a whole weekend, actually a whole bunch of weekends every year, just doing, doing history. In the old world, people do history. And the second thing is, is none of that, because there were no bubble sheets, was about facts. At least history was not about facts before the Enlightenment, the light people. History was never about filling in bubbles on an exam. It took the light person revolution. That's the thing we keep talking about on the show. It took that, it took that revolution to introduce history as something to do with facts, right? You see, the light person revolution did something really unique. It told humans, like me and you, and at the time, it was almost only white or light-skinned humans that bought this story, and it's pretty much everybody now. So it told humans that history, it isn't real if it's not backed up by facts. See, in the old world, history didn't need facts. What it needed was the truth about the being, the ontology of the people who were singing the songs. It was about identity and personhood. It was about which soul you inherited. Oh, I'm like Sanjiata. It was about which spirit you command which body you locomote, which mind you apply, all of them inherited from the story itself. For old worlders, history was epistemology. It was how you knew what you knew. And, right, it was the tried and true way to know about truth. 
Now, history is fact recall. History before the light people was a thing done by the cult for the people of the cult so that they might know who they were. Today, fact recall. Your grandpa's stories about life weren't about his life in the old world. They were about yours. They were stories about you. That's weird because, wait, how could he know? He is you. You have assumed him on some level. The words, right, were about you from a previous life, grandpa's life. His stories, right, told you about the life in you, the life bequeathed to you, and by all those who came before you. Light people changed that. They changed a lot of stuff that all goes along with it, right? Right? They changed the study of the human soul from something akin to prayer into something we now call psychology. Psyche in Greek means soul. Psychology, the study of the soul. The light people did the same thing with the body and how we know the body. They used reason and turned holistic medicine into physiology and then cut it into cardiology and ophthalmology and gastroenterology. And well, you get the picture. The light people revolution took human knowing out of the realm of the story, the narrative, and into the realm of fact. And well, that's who you should blame for those super dumb multiple choice questions you took in history class. See, the light people decided that all things true can be known rationally and factually. So they turned everything into an ology, into science. And in so doing, they killed narrative as a means to truth. Every year, when I was a teacher full-time, I asked kids in their senior year, hey, Which class, which series of disciplines, English, history, math, science, in which class did you learn about truth? Now, I can tell you what the answer was for kids in the old world. History. 95% of all kids today say math or science. They all said it. Every year at the end of the year, I'd say, where did you learn about truth? You think it was English class? No. No. History, yeah, right. Math and science. So what does all this mean? That they killed narrative as a means to truth. It's very serious business. Have you heard about information theory? It's the notion that the single most essential building block of reality is information. Information is reality. And information is transmitted by, what do you think? Language. Not facts, language. Now, anything that transmits is language, but it all starts with the word, the logos. This helps a little bit in understanding history as narrative. The storyteller is actually transmitting reality in the logos, the truth of the story. Not the dates, not the names, but in the truth found in the information of the story. Mm, but it's, that's that's confusing. Uh, not really, but it's somewhat confusing. Maybe we need another way to think of that. So here's a question for you. This will help. Do you know who your mother is? Are you sure you know? Do you recall 
clearly the things that would give you assurance that you know who your mother is. Do you recall, for example, sliding out of the birth canal? Yeah, I don't remember that. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. But I think I know who my mother is. I mean, I I think. I mean, I've never seen my birth certificate except that one time when I lost my passport. And I think my mother's name was on it, but I don't have it right now. I mean, I do, I think, upstairs in the attic since maybe forever. But I definitely, this is weird, never saw my mom's birth certificate. So I'm not really sure if my mom is who she says she is. But she is. I mean, I know she is because of the stories. Because of the stories. I know she is because of the stories she told me, but even more than that, because of the stories I tell about her. That's proof. Isn't it? Eh, wrong. Not according to the light people. According to the way they do history, if I really wanted to know my mom is my mom, I'd need some sort of first-person proof. Like word from the doctor who was there. Ha ha. But that guy's dead. Or corroboration from my dad, who wasn't even in the room, by the way. He was out with his buddies smoking a cigar. I mean, can you feel the whole Who's Your Mommy project falling apart? Can you can, can, can you feel it like I'm not sure I can prove it? Who my own mom is? Who out there feels a deep desire to have me stop talking about this? That's right. You just know it's your mom, dude, because... Dude, she's my mom. If you're feeling that, you're relying on something very old world. You're relying on narrative, on information, a unique narrative told by people you trust and honor, and who you hold in esteem. And in your mind, their words transmitted to you are truth. And you believe it despite the evidence or the lack thereof. You are relying on your people to transmit reality. You're relying on your cult, the culture of your family, and all of it to transmit the truth about who you are. And that is what history was before the light people changed it. History was logos, the word sent into the world as truth. History was psychology, physiology, cardiology, ophthalmology, and all of it wrapped into one. It was just the way you knew. And there were many histories, sure. Each one handed down cult by cult, family by family, language by language. But each knew, right? Each knew their finely woven tapestry as true until it all got dissected. And weirdly, about that time, the time of the Enlightenment, 15s and 1600s, people started to get dissected too. Yeah, about the same time that history starts to be, how should we say, deconstructed, people start to deconstruct the human body after it dies. I've always found that interesting, that one of the outcomes of the light people revolution was a renewed interest in autopsies cutting up the dead, studying the parts. You've heard of Leonardo da Vinci, right? The cutter, 
Well, he was a painter and all kinds of stuff. Da Vinci, a true, true Renaissance Enlightenment guy, he famously decided to cut up dead people to learn about what a human being was. He had to steal bodies to do this because generally people were holding on to the old world leg and saying like, no, dude, that's like a sacred vessel. It's a hole. Please don't cut it into parts. But Da Vinci was applying the new leg and eventually he got those bodies, cut up those parts. And he learned a ton and he drew mankind in a new way. He was turning his gaze, you see, away from the forest and focusing like lasers with a laser on the tree. Like a tree, a limb, a leaf. And well, everything was getting dissected with the Enlightenment. Everything was becoming a piece of a puzzle. Which is more important, the piece or the puzzle? Well, the piece. The pixels in a picture... Pixels or picture, which is more important? Well, the pixels became more important. Everything was becoming a cog and everything fit into a marvelous machine that the New Worlders called the mechanistic worldview. This is the way they started to see things, right? That's the scientific mechanistic worldview. Lig here is the lig, the ligaments that hold anything you believe to be true together. And we're painting the picture of the new world lig and the old world lig. And this lig, the new world lig, would change the way humans do history forever. That's our talk today. What is history? But it also changed the way that people everywhere do God. Religion, religion, what we know today as the worship of a god that changed too let's look at the protestant reformation that's the movement in europe in the 1500s away from tradition and toward the use of the bible as the way to know the will of god in many ways the protestant reformation was the thing that created the scientific revolution they're really closely aligned at a minimum the reformation was the dry timbers that allowed the science flame to turn into a ferocious fire. Let me try and explain that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Woo, there's a mouthful of very easy-to-understand scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God did that? That's a, that's a lot. You know that quote. That's the one the guy holds up at the football games, John 3, 16, something about Jesus. He's just like at a football game, like, for God so loved the world. This isn't easy to understand. It comes from the Bible. It's St. John, the gospel writer. But what does it mean? Here's a new world question. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? Well, to me, it means who cares what it means to me? No, really. Who, who cares? Why do you care what it means to me? And why do you, I care what it means to you? For God so loved the world and he gave his only begotten. See, that's the question the old world would ask right about now. Who cares what it means to you? 
And the old world question wouldn't even be a question at this point. It would just be a dude pointing. See, the ancient Christian leg would never ask that question. Rather, it would just point you toward the narrative. And the narrative would reside in the cult, in the culture, and in this case, in the culture of Christ, the place or the family where the culture of Christ resides. Just like if I were to point you, I don't know, my buddy Matt Drake, if I wanted, if you wanted to learn about the Matt Drake culture, I think you'd go to his house. I could tell you what it means to me to know Matt, but I think it's probably better you go into his house, right? That was the notion, go, taste, and see. In short, the truth regarding what this means, this, this Bible verse, resides within a running river or a beaten path. It's only known if the seeker enters the river or walks the path. It's never known outside of the way of the cult. The way the way of the culture. That was the original name of those who followed Christ, by the way. The followers of the way. The way was the thing you entered in order to imbibe and experience Christ. Aha! Baptism. You see? You had to join. You had to be initiated. The culture of Christ was the only way into the mysteries of Christ for the early Christians. And lots of Christians have felt this way since. But after the Protestant Reformation... Lots and lots of Christians got rid of that thinking. See, the Protestant Reformation and lots of Catholic theology too, it changed this. It did. And if I could, I'd like to tell you a story that illustrates just how they did it. How things changed with the new world. How Protestant reformers are co-authors of the new world. Right? Who's their buddy writer? Well, the deists and the atheists of the secular world. They work together. Remember, our goal is to understand how the meaning of history has changed. And it has changed ever since the light people revolution. So here's a story. It's really more like a scenario. And you're in it. You ready? This is going to help us understand and illustrate how history changed, and especially regarding religious history and the Protestant Reformation. Picture a family. Let's call them the Jack and Jenny Jones family. The Jack and Jenny Jones family. They're a big family. Let's say they live like um, in Philly. All right. And let's say you visit them one day. But it's a special day in Philly. That day at the Jack and Jones family, it's a big day. See, the day you visit, they're throwing what they call the Big Pig Day party. It's a cookout. And it's a dance-off. All in one the big pig day party. At the party, you notice that all the events are sort of regulated and they're unique. At the dinner, there's a toast that is told by the oldest female. She toasts to tasty fat. And at the beginning of her toast, she says, it's bacon, but it's better. And she says it like that. And you're like, what'd she say? It's bacon, but it's better. You're thinking, I think she said butter. But then it might be better. It's bacon butter. Butter. Right after that, a young son of the Jones clan approaches the pig on the spit and spins it three times. And everyone bows. And you bow too because you don't want to be alone. And plus, it's butter. Or is it better? 
The party continues and a book is brought out. And in it, there's pictures of the Jones family farming community going all the way back and all of their best pork meals. And there's stories upon stories of Jack and Jenny Jones relatives, a huge section on a side gig they call Little Pig Day and a big bound book on how to make the party eternal. What a book. Look at that thing. And you ask, hey, can I get a copy of that book? And they give you a copy, but it's a pamphlet. And you read it. And on page five, sitting there at that party, really enjoying yourself, you see there's a tome to how life is full of tasty fat. And then you hear a bell. It's rung after a short recitation from that very book. And the pig is turned again, this time by a young woman in overalls. And the toasts continue. And there's a crazy cool vibe. And it's weird. And the conversations are amazing. And then the dancing starts. And it's a weird Brazilian mamba feel. And it evokes joy. And you don't want to ever leave. But eventually the party ends. And you go home. Pamphlet in hand. And you think it was the weirdest, best party ever. And you write about it in a blog and then a newspaper loves it and picks it up and publishes your blog and you get a phone call the next day and it's from Jack and Jenny and they loved your article except for all the stuff that you got wrong you say no no I didn't get it wrong I was there I have the book right here it says that fat is all about living life to the fullest and they say yeah no that's just part of it there's a lot more that you left out and you say but I, I have the book. I was reading it right here. I was hoping to write my own book, actually, about your incredible party. And I really would love you to cooperate. And they say, why don't you come and stay with us for a while? And you say, well, how long? Because I, I have a job. And plus, it's kind of far. And they're like, well, why don't you please don't write about us anymore? And you say, but why not? I want to share what's in here. And I've done all the research. I'll come to the parties when I can. I'm an expert. But really, are you an expert? Really? In the old world, you're not an expert. But not because you don't have the knowledge. It's because you haven't joined the family. You've just come to memorize the book. But you're not living it. And you can't live it. It's not accessible to you unless... You join the family, like change your last name. Your writing about the sacred pig party text will actually, in the end, destroy the pig party and the narrative. See, unless you're standing in the rushing waters of their lived tradition, you're going to screw it up. You should go live with Jack and Jenny for a while, like a long time so what does this have to do with the Protestant Reformation? The Protestant Reformation was an experiment. Could we read the book outside of the living narrative? Could we, as individuals, understand the cult of Jesus? Could we understand the way? Could we do this without grafting ourselves to the tradition, to the narrative? Could we do like Descartes and think it out? Could we bubble sheet the right answers? 
Luther and his buddies, they bet yes. The Orthodox East and most of the Catholic West bet, oh no, you will not do that and you will lose. The New World took the bet. The Old World said, I wouldn't do that. Well, I don't think I know precisely if Protestant reformers mess stuff up, but I can say this on this pod, which is what this pod is about. And thanks for tuning in, by the way. I mean it. Their experiment was part of something new. Their experiment bet on the human mind as the plug-in necessary to know the God-man Jesus. That's a lot of stuff. The God-man Jesus? Yeah, they bet on the human mind. And I can say that was a new world thing. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, that's a very new world kind of thing. And if you notice, the Protestant worldview has, at least until the last 70 years or so, if you look at history, the Protestant worldview has been a really good partner with the new world atheistic light people lig. These two ligs, Ligions, thing, worldviews. I mean, they go together. They got along pretty well from 1776 until 1966. All right around there. The 60s were crazy, right? Things started to fray in the 60s. Baby boomers questioned the Protestant part of their existence. They rejected their parents' religion. Catholics, too. The Protestant rapper was being torn off and the atheistic secular core of our American founding was being exposed. And as this happens, and it still happens today, you can see the narrative of the Protestant Reformation is giving way to a new narrative, a new statue. That's the Columbus thing. That's the tearing down of Jefferson statue. The statue's or the narrative made flesh. They are the things that American griots, the American storytellers, secularists and Protestants alike, both of them, the American storytellers, they were together from the beginning. Those American griots left behind their big weekend of singing and dancing. What did they leave behind during that big weekend, which was really 150 years of weekends? What did the American griot leave behind? They left behind the statues you see all around us. And those statues represent our nature as Americans. They're like mirrors, but they're cracked. Like actually cracked. We can't see ourselves in them anymore and they have to come down because our new narrative, our new leg must go up. And the weird thing is, is that the new leg seems to be rejecting both the Protestant Christian leg and the light people leg. At the same time, they're being rejected by whatever is coming next. And that makes sense to me because those legs, the Protestant leg and the American New World leg, they're fraternal twins born minutes apart of the same mother destined to overthrow the old order. But what was the new, what will the new storytellers sing about next? What dance will the new griots perform? 
what statues will they leave behind? Because they will. No culture fails to build statues. Whatever the dance is, I sure hope it retains some of the old world approach to history. It probably won't. But it'd be cool. I mean, how cool would it be if history was done more like it was done before the light people revolution? Just think about it. History class would never have a bubble sheet exam, so you didn't have to do that. A class would actually look more like a reality show reveal, like, dun-dun-dun. Hey, kids, want to see yourselves in the mirror? Want to see what you look like? Take a peek. Here's Columbus with his racist attitudes and his dedication to detail, his unique ability to smudge the truth, and his crazy courage in the face of a murderous ocean. See that stuff? He's you. Look, he's all of us. Shall we dance? History would be done by griots. Cool teacher guys and bare chests. Let's go with that. Or teacher ladies with like, Beautiful dresses, and they would all be singing the truth about who we are into the souls of the progeny we call Americans. Let's do that. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. But who knows? Shenny's Gagi Marjos to everybody out there. That's a toast. That means to you the victory. It's often said at a KP table in Georgia. That is our pot for today. Thanks for coming along. Thanks to my kids, two of them anyway, for showing up. Nico and Georgia. Look for some guests, I don't know, that are older than 21 coming up. That'd be cool. But I love those chicks. Thanks for coming on. Waktar is produced by Andrew Schwark and Daniel Paternos. Our pod is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation, a nonprofit that lives and works in some of the world's most impoverished places. We immerse in order to create momentum for local change makers, folks we call impresarios. We facilitate their vision of a better life. Share Watar with friends. Hit us up with solid reviews on iTunes and everywhere you get your podcast. Your love for us allows us to love and serve others. So, nachvandis, hasta luego, kambufo, au revoir, and peace out.